Amen. We're starting a new series this morning, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, a little bit towards the end of the New Testament. Right after 1 Peter, if that helps. <laughs> and right before 1 John, if you get to the, the epistles of John. We're going to look this morning as we... As we uh, look at this book, chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 11 of 2 Peter. So would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? Well, living the Christian life is not easy. There are many forces that are pulling on you, tempting you to conform to all kinds of different ways. And sometimes it's clear when those forces are pulling you, and sometimes it's not so clear that those forces are pulling and pushing on you. It reminds me of that proverb, Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, uh, but its end is the way to death. You know, Jesus, in similar fashion, has a, uh, says this in Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know, I have been a, a part, probably like you, of many churches throughout the years, and in every church I've been a part of, it is not hard really at all to see and, you know, to look around at the people that are a part of the church and to know, well, where are they in terms of their confit their commitment and their conformity to the life that we are called to live. I mean, it's, it's so evident that there are these differing aspects of commitment levels and conformity levels that church health books, church growth books, you know, church planning books will all identify these groups as the targets for your ministry because they're so easily evident as you look at the lives of people. For example, in one book, they, 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 they talk about that group which would be called the community and there's the crowd, and then there's the, I'm trying to think, the congregation, and the, the committed, and the core. 
Using Jesus' own ministry as an example, when you think about he went throughout the community of Israel, preaching and teaching, and there were those crowds who were curious as to what he was about and would come and find out. And those who would listen to him and like what he had to say and kind of wanted to join what he was doing became part of that, that congregation that followed him around. If you think about the, the, di- the days of the disciples, there were those 120 that were also uh, part of what, what he was doing. And then you had what he called the committed, the 12 disciples who were committed to his way and his, and, and, and his, uh, his teaching at an intimate level. And then you had this, the core the core, the the Peter, James, and John, those who would be taken with them upon the mountain to see His majesty revealed. So these books talk about that. You can look out at the people in your congregation, in in your area, as it were, your ministry target, and you can see very easily where they are in terms of their commitment level, their conformity level. And you think, well, it certainly gives us reason to ask, well, okay, well, where am I if those are the the categories. And where do I stand in terms of that measure of commitment and conformity level or maturity level in my relationship with the Lord? You know, Peter doesn't talk about it in terms of breaking down into these five groups or five categories. He simply has two, you know, those who are committed and those who are not, in essence. And he's trying to help us to see, well, where is it? Where are we? How are we living? Does our life match what we say we believe? Because it's not as though there really is a gradation. You are either on the road that leads to life, or you are either on the road that leads to death. I mean, those are the only two choices that we have, though we see differing levels of commitment and conformity or, or maturity in our own faith. So, this, is, this, this letter that he's writing is kind of helping us to do some evaluative questions about who we are in terms of our commitment to the Lord. What road am I on? Maybe you could put it in a little bit more of a crass way. If I asked you to raise your hand and and said, how many of you out there would see yourselves as Christians? You could raise your hand if you want to. (laughs) The next question would be, prove it. Could you prove it? Do you have evidence in your life that if you had to present to a court to say, here's the evidence of the fact that my life is committed to Christ? It's not that the evidence makes you a Christian. That's not the point at all. But the evidence is evidence. When you go to a courtroom, if you're being brought on trial, what you have done is already in the past. What the lawyers are trying to do is present evidence that shows what's really true. So if I asked you, if you, are you a Christian, are you a follower of Christ, and you say yes, then the next question is, well, is there evidence in your life that would support that claim? I mean, it is a frightening thought to think about some of the words that Jesus utters in, towards the end of His ministry, and He says that many will come to Me at the end and say, Lord, Lord, and He says, depart from Me because I never knew you. They thought they were committed, but in the end, it finds out they weren't. So, what does Peter have to teach us about this? And, and what's fascinating, he says in this book, which is largely a call to obedience, it's a call to say, look, you need to get your life matching what you say you believe. You know, 
It's not as though he's trying to get you to, to work up something that you don't already have. He's saying, no, look, you already do have something. You just need to live out what you already have. It is fascinating in this letter. He says, you have everything necessary that pertains to live a life of godliness. It's not as though you have to achieve it, you have to attain it. He says, you, you have it. You already have it. So that's what this letter is really calling us to, a life of godliness. As I think about, you know, when you think about, well, I'm a Christian, what does that mean? It means I've been saved, and you think, well, what does it mean to be saved? Well, it means I've been saved from God's judgment. I've been saved from God's wrath that I deserve. And that's true, but it's, it's only the first part of the, the truth. There's a much bigger aspect. You weren't just saved from something. I mean, if you, if you were just being saved from something, there would really be no point. You're saved to something. You're saved to living a life that looks like the God that you worship. You're saved to live a life of godliness. By the way, that's what it means to be godly. It means to live a life that looks like God's life that He exhibited. And that's what you are saved to, and He has given us everything necessary that pertains to living that life. Now, sometimes we don't start always with the right motivation to live that life. As you can think about the story of, of Israel as they came out of Egypt, when they were in Egypt, they were suffering under the heavy hand of their slavers, doing work that was, that was burdening them and beating them down. And when God came to rescue them with Moses leading the way, finally bringing those ten plagues upon Egypt, stirring Egypt's anger at the people, causing them to go away. And of course, they initially went away with great rejoicing, but then they turned around to find out that Pharaoh had changed his mind and his army was chasing him. And so they fled from Egypt. And their primary motivator for their fleeing was fear. And sometimes I think we go to the Lord because we are, we are fleeing out of fear. Fear of judgment, so we go before the Lord. Fear of the, what, what is going to happen at the end of our life if we don't go towards the, towards the Lord. And fear is certainly a powerful motivator, at least in the short term. It gives you a short burst of energy, which sometimes that's exactly what you need. I know I've told you my story before, but it, you know, I think about in practical terms, when I was in college, kind of living that wayward life and feeling the, the weight of the guilt of that, and the fear of, well, what's going to happen if I die in this guilt? And it pushed me to try and live a better life. Fear does motivate you to try to get your life in order and live better. But it's, it's not a long-lasting motivation. For us, the fear will drive you, but as soon as the, the thing that was causing that fear subsides, the motivation is gone to live that way. And, of course, that was the truth for me. As, as soon as I was successfully living a more obedient life, a life that I thought I ought to live, and the fear went away, my life just went back to the way it was before. You think about Israel, they're leaving Egypt, and they're running for their lives. They're highly motivated out of fear of death. And God brings them to the Red Sea where they're stuck, and the army of Egypt is behind them. And Moses raises his hand, and the, and the Red Sea parts, and they walk through on dry land, motivated by fear, I'm sure. And God causes the water to come crashing down, wiping out the Egyptian army. And you know what was gone? fear, because it was removed. 
So what was left to motivate them to keep going? I don't know if they quite knew yet, but God brought them to the mountain that Moses had instructed him to bring them, and there he met them, and he describes what he has done for them. I've brought you out of Egypt like an eagle would bring her, her younglings out. I've rescued you on eagle wings and brought you to myself in order to reveal my presence to you. And as they begin to grow in that sense of who God is, there is to be a replacing motivation. It's no longer fear or guilt that's driving me to pursue living this life that you've called me to live. Well, now it's a desire, a hunger to be like this God who has rescued me. Love becomes the motivator in place of fear. And I, I, you know, if you think about, well, where am I on that road? Am I on the road to life or am I on the road to death? A big question is asked is what motivates you to live the way you live? What is the biggest draw in your life? Now, I want to go through this because if my uh, main point that I want you to get, that I want you to take home with you is to understand that it is the love of God that is the motivator to living the life that He's called us to live. And I think it's the only one that will allow us to be steadfast in that commitment. Only the love of God. So I want to expound the two things. How do you live a life of godliness? Well, you have to be motivated by love for God, and you have to have a, an allegiance to God. You have to be motivated by a love for God and have an allegiance to God. So I want, to, I want to spell that out because I think that's what Peter is really doing in the first part as he opens this letter. And again, while it might have been fear initially that leads us to God, it's only love that's going to keep us there. Only love for God will do that. And we have to ask, well, where does that love come from? Where does that love come from? And I think, simply put, it comes as we grow into an understanding of how wonderful God's love is for you. I mean, how does John put it? He says, we love because He first loved us. That's how he puts it. And Peter doesn't use those words, but really what he's doing in this first half, he's explaining how is it that you know God's love is for you? What has God's love done for you? And so he begins to expound that. So look First of all, how, how he does that in this letter. First of all, he opens it in an interesting way. He says, Simon, Simeon Peter, a servant of an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Just pause there. He is just saying, he's writing this letter to the church, to those whom he describes as having obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Do you ever think of yourself as having a faith of equal standing with one of the 12 disciples that walked with Jesus? I mean, we think of them as the guys we put on the pedestal. Well, you know, they had more faith than anyone in the world, anyone in history. That's why God chose them, right? I mean, that's kind of the way we think. There's no one who can match their faith. But it is interesting to think, how are they described by Jesus Himself when you go read the Gospels? Matthew says, over and over and over, oh, you of little faith. Mark is a little bit more blunt. He just says, oh, you of no faith. 
That's how he's describing these 12 disciples. And as you look at the life of these 12 disciples, I mean, they're, they're kind of hot and cold as they follow Jesus along, really not quite sure exactly what he's doing. And as soon as Jesus dies, what are, where are they? Yeah, they've hidden. They left him, you know, abandoned him in the garden. They're hiding in the locked room for afraid that these same soldiers are going to come get them as well. But then, not that long later, we find them boldly standing in the places on the public squares, preaching to people who they know at any time could turn on them. You think, what has happened to change them? In the book of Acts, as we read, you get to Acts chapter 17, and at one point, the secular city officials are commenting on the disciples saying, these are men who have come here who have turned the world upside down. This is what their faith has done. Their faith has moved them out of this place of fear to this place of great boldness. They're having such an impact upon the known world at the time that the secular people observe that they are turning the world upside down. The, each of these men, possibly with the exception of the Apostle John, was willing to pursue that faith all the way to the point of dying some martyr's death. And Peter has the gall to write as he opens this letter I'm writing to you who have obtained a faith that's an equal standing with ours. What was the difference? Like, what on earth? How did they obtain this faith? That's the bigger question, right? Think, how did we obtain it? Did we work ourselves into this? I certainly don't see myself as having the faith on par with the disciples. So how do we obtain a faith like that? The same way they did. The big change happened, of course, in the opening of the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they move from these people who are hiding to these people of great boldness. Faith was a gift given to them. They didn't accomplish it at all. In the same way, God gives us faith. We obtain faith in the same way because what is our faith in? Our faith is in the righteous work of Christ, which is exactly what he says here, with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the same righteousness that our faith is in that the disciples had. It's the first thing. He has given you this remarkable faith that has the power to do what the disciples did. You have that. It's been given to you faith of equal standing with these disciples. As we keep going, I love what he says, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There is this understanding that as you grow in your knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, God is going to multiply grace and peace to you. There's a correlation there. There should be an encouragement for us to be engaged in the Word, to be looking to discover and mine the depths of the treasures of, of what God has to say about Himself and His great plan to redeem us. How do we grow in the knowledge of God and the, and the knowledge of Christ? Well, one, we are committed to the church that He has established as He's, He's placed there the ordinary means of growing in that grace. And as we do, there is this expectation that grace and peace will be multiplied to you. So, what exactly does that love 
do for us? Let's keep reading. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Did you get that? He has granted you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't earn those over time. He's granted them to you, all things that pertains to life and godliness. I, I think that we, we have this sense to settle into living as defeated Christians way too often. And we, we use the excuse, on the one hand, you know, there, is, there are a lot of cultural pulls on us. There's a lot of temptations on us. And we tell ourselves, well, we are only human after all. You know, we even quote the, cat, the children's catechism. Well, we are corrupt by nature. As though that's an excuse for us to live defeated lives. And yes, that is in fact true of human beings. We are, grow, we, are, we are born, we inherit a sinful, corrupted nature. But there is something different in the life of a believer than the one who was born, when you were born. And that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament when it describes the new covenant, he says, I will take out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I will write the law of God not on the external things that you will read, but on the internal aspects of your very heart. There is a, a power, for lack of a better word, that you have as a result of the fact that God has claimed you, that He has given you a faith. It is a force in your life to live a godly life. Now, what are some of those things that he spells out here? All things that pertain to life and godliness. The first thing he talks about is a calling to his own excellence, to his own glory and excellence. He's given us a calling to his own glory and excellence. This is what we are called to. You know, we're not called to live as we, as we once did. And as I think about, you know, the, the, the person who wants to be a Christian but is conflicted by the life the Christian he thinks is supposed to live, because there is this, this view that the culture would impose on you that a Christian life is a boring life. A Christian life means I'm giving up my fun. I don't get to participate in all the things that my friends around me are doing. And I think there, while we, we would consciously tell ourselves that, well, I know that's not supposed to be the case, but the reality is we've kind of bought into that idea. That maybe I'll put that off till I'm older, till I've had my fun. You know, Christian life is like eating vegetables. We know it's good for me, but we don't like it. But the very fact, what he's saying, he's saying, I'm calling you. He's calling you to his own glory and excellence. He's saying, I'm calling you to something that isn't boring or no fun, I'm calling you to something that is glorious. I'm calling you to something that is, that is excellent. And I really think if we don't get this, we will never have the motivation to live a life of godliness. We'll always be struggling against the way we really want to go, where our heart really wants to go and pursue. We have to see this. Now, there's a great example in the Old Testament. We went through it when we were looking at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is, is, to me, one of the most 
powerful psalms that speaks to me. It's, it's written by, you know, a priest who spends his time normally working the sanctuary, but here he is, he's complaining in the opening of the psalm about how he's looking at the way the wicked lives, and he is frustrated because he sees the way they're living, they're prosperous, they're having fun, they're eating what they want, they're growing fat and sleek, and, and everybody's just approving of them and going along. So they have all the approval of the people, the affirmation of the people, and yet they're living blatantly in a way that says, God doesn't care about the way we do, the way we live. And they don't seem to be suffering any illnesses as a result, any negative uh, uh, impact of living such a way. And he says, I, was, I am living my faith in vain. What good is it to live this godly life? That's exactly what he's spelling out as he looks in this psalm until he gets to one crucial point. Later in the psalm, after he describes this, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood. And I think there's two things he understood. One, he understood something about where the road they're on is leading. And I think we forget that. You know, as Jesus said, there is a road, a wide road, that leads to death, and a narrow road that leads to life. And I think we forget that when we're on that wide road, while it may seem fun in the moment, it's actually leading us off a cliff. It's leading us to our own death. So he sees that first of all. He says, when I went into the sanctuary, then I saw their final end. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes on to to say something else later in the psalm. And, And this is the fascinating verse he says. He says, On earth, there is nothing I desire besides you. It's as though coming into the sanctuary, having an experience of the presence of God, he realizes, or remembers perhaps, that there is nothing on this earth that is more desirable than the glory and excellence of God. So it's not as though we're eating our vegetables because we know it's good for us, even though we don't like it. It's so, no, we are getting to actually pursue the thing that even in this earth is the ultimate thing to pursue, the ultimate thing that is going to grow our soul, grow our heart, grow our joy, if it were, to give us life. So we have to see that there is a calling to His own glory and excellence. And then He says, He's also given us these precious and very great promises. These precious and very great promises. Now, he doesn't spell those out explicitly, but it's not that hard to know what he's talking about. All the promises of God are in some ways, are, they are connected. As we think about the Bible and what the Bible is about, the Bible is, is unfolding God's great plan to redeem a people that were once lost. And as he gives us promises, each of those promises is revealing a little bit more of that plan of what God is doing. So as you go back and look at the very promise, the very beginning that was made to Adam and Eve, he says, in essence, I promise that that there will be a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the adversary who tempted you to go your own way. Move a little bit farther. In the time of Noah, I promise to save you from the floods of judgment. You know, we move to the time of Abraham. I promise to be your God and to make you my people, to be a marriage there. I will be the beautiful, excellent thing that you get to worship. The time of Moses, you know, I promise to deliver you from slavery and bondage to these false idols and bring you into a relationship with me, a place where I will dwell in your midst. 
And we get the time of David. I promise to put my son on the throne to establish a kingdom that is about healing and wholeness and prosperity and blessing. That you will unite ultimately all the nations under the Lord. I mean, you think about it. Not all of these promises have been completely fulfilled yet. Jesus has yet to come back and to consummate the kingdom that, he is, that has been inaugurated with Him on the throne. But nonetheless, these are the very great promises that help us to see past where we are in the present. How do we see what's at the end of the road? Because of the very great promises that God has given. You see, He has, he has given us everything necessary to live a life of godliness. That's what Peter is expounding on for us to say. And where does this lead? This is, the, this is perhaps the most fascinating verse in it. Where does this lead? Look at verse 4. It leads to becoming partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All of this leads to becoming partakers of the divine nature. That is remarkable language. We could ask, well, what does that mean? I mean, Paul says it a little bit differently. Paul simply says that you have been filled or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have been united together with the Holy Spirit. You have become partakers of the divine nature. And I, I, I like the distinction between the two terms because when we think about being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, it, you know, it, yes, we see we have a, an, what was once alien to us power at work within our hearts, when we talk about partaking with the divine nature, we're talking about a way of living. How does God actually live? How does God actually conduct Himself? What are His characteristics? What are His attributes? What is His nature? And He says, you are becoming a partaker of the very nature of God. And one thing that the Israelites learned when they were brought out of Egypt to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where He met them, is that God says to them, you are My people, you are to be holy because I am holy. That is my nature. And how do you understand what holiness looks like? Well, here's what it looks like, and He gives them, of course, the commandments. Ultimately summed up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the essence of the character, the nature of God. And he says, I have, I, I'm leading you so that you are partakers of this divine nature. In other words, I'm doing things in your life through your faith as you grow in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ that is conforming you to something wholly other than you were before. That without Christ, you would have no power to become. That's what he's saying. This is what the love of God is at work doing in your life which I think is meant to be the motivator. This is what is true of you. Therefore, now he transitions. Therefore, do everything in your power to, make your, to confirm your calling and election. Seek to align your life in every way that you can with what I have told you already is, is true of you. You have obtained in a faith of equal standing with the apostles themselves. You have been made partakers of the divine nature. You have been given very great and precious promises. You have been called to the glory and excellency of God Himself. 
And so what do you do? Look at verse, look at verse 5. For this very reason, therefore, in other words, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here is this calling. You, you have not just been saved for the purpose of being rescued from God's wrath. You've been saved to conform your life to that of the Lord. That's the whole point. And so seek, strive, work hard at making the outside of your life look like what you say is true on the inside. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue is, you could call, uh, excellent character, integrity, trueness, if you want to think of it that way. You know, what do you, how it is, what does your life look like when no one is looking, that kind of thing? Do you live one way in front of people that you're concerned about how they might see you, and do you live another way when no one is looking? You know, if someone were to open your phone to see all the things that you've looked at when no one was watching, or your computer, would it match what you say is true about you? You know, supplement your faith with virtue. That's the calling. Now look, I mean, yes, even Peter is implying that there is a growth to this. If you are, if you are, how's it, how does he put it? In verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, there is a recognition that, yes, you have some room to grow. There are going to be times when you're not conforming your outside of your life to your inside. But that, the question is, where is the trajectory? Is it increasing? Is it growing? Every day, is, there getting, is, it, is it growing more like Christ and less like that of the world? Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Again, there's this, the knowledge of God. The knowledge of Christ is the whole key. Knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. I mean, all of these are overlapping. Self-control, though, think about That's a big one. How, when we think about self-control, do we have evidence of self-control? When we don't exercise self-control, in some areas, it's evident to everybody. I mean, if, if we're unhealthy, it's indicating that we have a lack of self-control with regard to our health, healthful habits, whether it's eating or exercise. I mean, everybody can see those things. Self-control. There's aspects of your life that are, are hidden, perhaps, less visible to people. Do you exhibit self-control? When temptations suddenly come upon you, you weren't ready, do you have the ability to, to turn your eyes away? I say this to men especially, who are very motivated by the lusts of the eyes and the lusts of the flesh. 
when those things come across your screen or your phone or your Facebook or social media feed? Do you exercise self-control? And while there's a part of you that's initially allured and tempted and drawn, do you have the power to exhibit self-control? I mean, the, the, the answer is, yes, you do, if what Peter says is true of you. So now he's saying, exercise it. Exercise it. Steadfastness, again. Steadfastness is what separates the one who's motivated by something other than love from the one who's motivated by love. You can live a godly life for a time with the wrong motivation, or one at least that looks like it. But the one who's motivated by the love of God, with the power of God, with what God says is true here, is steadfast. His faith doesn't fail over time. It continues on. And steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings a question, why is God giving you a knowledge of Himself? Because by the way, anything you know about God personally from an attribute perspective, beyond the fact that He is eternal and all-powerful, has been revealed to you. He chose to reveal that to you. How do you keep that revelation not having an impact on your life? By working to supplement your faith with these things, by seeking to live out what you say you believe. It is meant to have to bear fruit in your life. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. For as you live this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we have to be careful. He's not saying that if you live this way, you will have earned your way into, the, into heaven. He's not saying that. But if you live this way, you're showing that what God has established for you to save you is actually real. Here's the evidence. When Jesus talks about the tree, He says what? You will know a tree by its fruit. The fruit doesn't make it the tree. The fruit is indicative of what the tree is. The same thing is true. When we get to the end, the day of judgment, and God is looking at us, is there evidence to say that, yes, there is a significant, substantial change in your heart and in your life? Am I really your God? And by the way, when we think about the Israelite being rescued out of Egypt, well, I know we think about them running, being set free from death and those things, but what is the key thing that they were set free from? When God brings them to Himself on Mount Sinai, and He gives them the Ten Commandments, what do the first four commandments have to do with? Anyone remember? Our relationship. You get to worship God. You couldn't do that before. What were you worshiping before? You're worshiping other gods. He set you free from the idols that once held you in slavery. When God sets us free, you have to think about what idols of our culture has He set us free from serving? I mean, that's how Paul puts it. He says, you are a slave to the thing that you obey. That is your real God. 
So if we do not see the excellencies and worth of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God that, that, that has drawn and attracted our hearts so much, it means we are actually pursuing some other God. Maintaining perhaps the illusion that, oh, we're Christians, we're okay, when all the time we're seeking to serve another God. Some of those in Israel didn't, didn't quite understand the beauty of God. As they wandered in the wilderness, what were they saying? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. The other gods were better. I think, I mean, our culture is constantly whispering to us, there are other gods that are better than the one that you worship. And our minds are easily led astray. So how do we keep on it? We continue to grow in the knowledge of God. Practically speaking, where do you do that? Well, you do that in the church that God has given birth to, where He's established the ordinary means of grace, the Word, the sacraments, and prayer. Being engaged in small groups where you can talk about it one-on-one or two-on-two or three-on-three with each other to apply personally the things that you're learning. I mean, these are very practical ways that we can keep the knowledge of God growing in us so that we can see the fruit of that growth working out in our life. So, Second Peter, I think it's a good test for us. Do we really understand the gospel and what it has done in our lives? It has saved us not only from the wrath of God, but it has saved us from our old corrupt nature, our enslavement to the foreign gods of our culture, that we might live and walk in newness of life. That's holistically the message of the gospel. So, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this letter in Second Peter which gives us this test to examine what road we're walking on. Is there fruit in our life to show that you have, in fact, given us a faith? And with that faith, everything that pertains to a life of godliness, Lord, help us to focus on the wonder and the glory of who you are, that calling you've given us. Help us to remember that we are partakers of the divine nature, that you have caused your Holy Spirit to come dwell with us that we might be set free from the passions of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, to live a life that reflects your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup.